Please turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. We'll be reading momentarily from the first 19 verses of Daniel 9 today. The title is Corporate Prayers, or Our Prayers Together, Corporately, Corporate Prayers. 2,561 years ago, Daniel prayed. Prayed. That is the subject of today's sermon. He prayed. That's all. Not ready for you to go home yet. But it's a bit of a brief summary of what's going on here. The situation we drop ourselves into in the 6th century B.C. is extraordinary, but the prayer is informative because of the aspects of it that are quite ordinary. The text we're going to read will help, of course, with the aid of the Spirit, can help us to solve a common problem, a problem which you may resonate with. can be expressed with something like this. I know that I need to pray, but I don't know what to say. I know that I need to pray, but I don't know what to say. It is true that sincerity is a primary factor in our prayers. When we talk to God, it needs to come from, from our heart, doesn't it? We think of the man in the New Testament that inspires us because he could hardly formulate words, but he could beat his chest and express his sinful nature before a holy and righteous God. That's good. But that's not the extent of faithful prayer. It's not just sincerity. The scripture instructs us and leads us toward thoughtfulness in prayer as well. Scripture helps us to form our prayers. God teaches us in his word that there is an interplay between the Bible text itself and our prayers. Praying the scripture is something that we are taught by Jesus and many leaders in the Bible. We find that there's an interplay between word and prayer that the leaders of the church are supposed to be exemplars in. In fact, when the church was getting unhealthy, one of the problems that is articulated in the sixth chapter of Acts is that the leaders of the church weren't giving time to the study of the word of God and to prayer and so they were doing good things. They were waiting tables and trying to help care of wit take care of widows in need, which is a ministry of the church. But they were not giving adequate time, whatever adequate time was, to word and prayer. And it wasn't just that the leaders of the church, the Christian leaders of the early church, were supposed to give time to the word and to prayer. It was that they were to be an example for everyone else in the church, that they should give themselves to word and prayer in an adequate enough amount of time to be in a healthy relationship with God. And then our ministries are to, they're to, to flow out from that. We're to serve out from there. Uh, not one for the other, but, but both and. and. And so we find this interplay between word and prayer is a theme throughout Scripture. Are we, it's kind of an oversimplification to say it this way, but to communicate to you in a manner in which I hope that we all can understand, even thinking of the littlest ones in here. Uh, in a sense, the Word of God, the Scripture, is God talking to us. He's given us this. If you want to hear from God, hear. Like, like study it, and uh, am I the only one that feels like my head's in a barrel? Am I ringing? I feel like I'm ringing, like I just keep doing a ringing thing. Do you want me to switch microphones, or is this, this is okay? All right. Um, we'll keep going then. But this, this is God speaking to us. And so if you want to hear from God, you, you want to read this and understand it. When I, prayer in many ways is us speaking to God. 
Now, that, that's an oversimplification, I know, but this is all about relationship. Word and prayer is all about relationship with God. And so it, we can overcomplicate it, but we can also short sell its importance. Our, the vibrancy in our Christian lives is it's dependent on God communicating with us and us communicating with God. We are communicating with God. Individually, yes, but, but not privately and pietistically, exclusively. Corporately, we're communicating with God. And even though this is Daniel's prayer, we're hearing it corporately. We have it in the Bible corporately, and it is steering us in how we pray corporately. And I hope that you'll see that in the course of this, of this sermon. We tend to like the sound of our own voices. We tend to like to talk. But sometimes the cat gets our tongues when it comes to prayer. We, we don't have a voice. We lose our voice. We, we, we don't know what to say or we, we, we're, we're afraid to say or we simply don't take the time to say. I hope that today will help you and help me when I know that I need to pray as a Christian, but I don't know what to say. And to put it really very bluntly from, from the beginning, we are to pray God's promises back to Him. We are to state the Scripture back to God. And that, that is not, a, that is not I don't need to cite a, a book outside the Bible to make that point, but there is a book that will help you understand this concept beyond today's sermon, and so I will reference it. It's a book by Donald Whitney titled Praying the Bible. And it's a, it's a helpful little book on this spiritual discipline of prayer through praying the Bible. It, one of the things that he says in the book is that if you will develop and nurture the habit of praying the Bible, you will never run out of things to say. A simple yet powerful point. We find in Acts 6 in the Bible that when word and prayer is returned to its proper place in the church, not that it's a one-on-one correlation like it's in the right place and so God gives an increase, but it sure seems to be in Acts chapter 6 that the healthier the church was with regard to word and prayer, the more that they saw opportunities and they saw some priests come to Christ and they, they, had, some, they had some conversions to talk about. Evangelism and missions was put back in its right place. Prayer is so important for us and it should be modeled by the leaders and we should look first in the mirror if we're having a dearth of prayer, if we're struggling with prayer. We should look first in the mirror and not out the window as leaders in the church at what that looks like. So, so Daniel 9, no more introductions. Daniel 9 talks about prayer, and I want to take the, ver- the 19 verses we're going to read, and I want to look at them in three different parts. I just want to look at the first two verses at how, uh, it's a point I'm already making in the introduction, how Scripture inspires prayer. And it'll be a shorter point, the longer point will be the second point, and that is verses 3 through 15, where it, particularly Scripture, that is, inspires us to pray prayers of confession, as well as prayers of praise. You've heard those this morning already. You heard a prayer of praise, and you heard a prayer of confession, both. Um, That's intentional. And then thirdly, you're going to see in verses 16 to 19 that Scripture inspires prayers of petition. Um, You might use a kinship word like requests. This is the one that we're most accustomed to. We tend to to front-load this and, and backload any sense of praying the scripture. And so that'll be our last point. And in verses 16 and 19, we will see Daniel modeling for us prayers of petition. You might also say not just request, but supplication is another word that is used to describe this. And embedded in that is the concept of gratitude or thanksgiving. So if you were taught the old model of Acts, uh, A-C-T-S, for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, you will see that ingrained in these three points with regard to praise, confession, and petition. So let's go with the scripture now. Let's hear it read aloud and follow those breaks in the text. And I'm going to give you one more spoiler alert before I read it. Watch for the use of the divine name in this chapter, which is typified from Hebrew to English with the capital letters L-O-R-D. Watch for that as well. Okay. Hear God's word read aloud. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Verse 3. 
Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, that great and awesome, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they have committed, that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For unto the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity came upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous, righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Verse 16. Through 19. Our Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. No, not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for for your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto those who hear. I want you to notice, first of all, in this text, I want you to notice that Scripture inspires prayer. First point comes from verses 1 and 2. Scripture inspires prayer. Now, from the onset, I want to say, what is striking about this text that we have to get right, and it is so easy to get wrong, it's a subtle mistake, but we have to get right, we must get right, if we are going to get where I believe the Spirit wants to take us through the right understanding of the text, we must get right, is this is not Daniel as a prophetic figure standing up in the 6th century and lambasting Babylon for their ills. That is easy. Oh, the culture. Oh, that country. That premier, that ruler, that president, that prime minister, that governor, that, 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 that's not what Daniel's doing here. Our people, the people called by your name, the people that profess to know you, we have sinned. To us belongs the blame. We have open shame. It's our fault that our name has become a byword. Do you see that? 
right out of the gate. That is critical to worship. It is so difficult to worship God by looking out the window at what everybody else is doing. What the Word of God is designed to do, and it's the reason it's so critical in prayer, is it is to serve, as theologians have said throughout time, as a sort of a mirror, so that when you read the Bible, it sort of looks right back on you. Now, individually, yeah, but, but corporately, as the people. It's like it's a mirror, and it's looking right back on us, and it's showing us the ugly, and it drives us to despair, and then gets us to the good news of the gospel. Of course, we'll get there, but understand that this is part of worship. It has been, and it is part of worship. And how sad it is when we try to whitewash the tombs of people that profess to worship God by eliminating the law of God and eliminating corporate confession to God. Ours is the loss when we neglect to pray, isn't it? Daniel prayed three times a day. Um, Daniel talks about this. In fact, you might recall where he wound up because he wouldn't stop praying. He wound up in the lion's den. But there's something about this that points us corporate. And I've said from the start, the, the header on this does not say, Daniel's corporate prayer to be read in churches so that you would know how to pray corporately. I don't mean to advocate that that's a one-on-one. But man, can't we learn from this. And, and, and here's, here's why, I think. Notice how he, although he may not individually have committed, has, have committed every sin, but notice how he leads God's people in the plural pronoun we in prayer. We, 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 we. You know, a leader takes responsibility for the people that he's called to lead. A leader does not simply seek for what he can get from the people. A leader does not look at the people as if they're under him. That's never been Christian leadership. What a leader is, is among the people. Living with the people. So that he knows how to rightly articulate the needs and even the sins of the people to the God in whom we serve together. Heaven knows I get a lot of things wrong as a Christian leader, but one thing that the Lord has helped me, and He has helped me to get right in the last few years, is a deep and reverential regard for you. When I go through the church prayer list now, and I'm praying through the membership, well, that person's above that person's above that. That's not how I look at it. And I don't want to advocate that in my youthful pomposity that that's never been the case. I just want to tell you it's not now. I'm like, man, I really respect that man. Now, that's an 81-year-old man that's been serving the church for six decades. Man, I love him. How can I pray for him this week? That lady's birthed five children, and she somehow makes it to church every Sunday. How do I pray for that person? Daniel's modeling how to pray corporately. And yes, he calls out his people by essentially the Word of God being a mirror as he's perceiving from the Word of God what's going on. But he is, he's not separating himself in every manner from the comings and goings of the people. He can lead them because he considers himself one of them. This is important. It's important. You know, Daniel's probably 80 years old now by estimations. He's about 11 years after the previous vision in this vision part of Daniel, which spans chapter 7 through chapter 12. So there's been two previous visions, and now we come to the third vision. It's probably 11 years since the previous vision by the calculation of people that study these things. Daniel's spent seven out of eight decades, nearly, away from where he wanted to be, away from home geographically. He was exiled because his people were conquered. And the, the 70 years that the prophet Jeremiah writes about, and I might say just, it's, it's, it might not be so obvious, so I'll, just, I'll say this. Some of you already picked up on this, but Jeremiah is self-consciously writing as a prophet in the 6th century B.C. or 
Daniel wouldn't be considering the writings of Jeremiah authoritative. He's reading this and perceiving this and then reporting on this and praying this scripture from Jeremiah. Look at it in case you, in case you don't see it because this, this next thing I want to say doesn't make much sense without it. Look at, um, just look at not, verses 1 and 2 afresh. In the first year of Darius, who I take to be Cyrus, king of Persia, a descendant of the Mede, who was king over the realm of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians. So he's king over the Babylonians now. So they've conquered. In the first year of his reign, Daniel was reading Jeremiah, and it says the word of the Lord, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And it says Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that were in that book that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years of exile. So, you know, you know, the Jews would return and rebuild the temple, but they're in exile. And Daniel has lived his lifespan in exile. And what he's thinking of, I, I think it's pretty safe to say, is verses from Jeremiah, which you have the book of Jeremiah in your Bible now. We have a fuller canon of Scripture. Like, it's, it's filled out. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, makes it clear that we're, we're done getting Revelation we have it all now. Daniel didn't have this much. He had the law. He quotes the law here, references the law. I should say the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he's also citing the prophets. And he's apparently been studying the word. And that's Im- impacting his prayers. And, and look at what he says, for, or, or, or I should say, he's, I think he's referencing from Jeremiah, verses like chapter 25, verse 11 and 12. And it says, the, the whole land, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, or the Chaldeans, for 70 years. Years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity or their sins, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And there's other passages like this in Jeremiah. It's not the only one, but you may have keyed in on the fact that Daniel was picking up on the fact, not so much looking forward at numbers of years, but looking back, okay, I think it's been 70. And now the Babylonians have been triumphed over. They've been kicked out. Remember Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall, and he's out. And now there's this new king. And, and here's King Darius, and I think it's, it's, I can sense maybe that the decree might come with the, the way this administration works as compared to the last. We might get to go home. And, and, and so he is contemplating Scripture, and it's affecting his prayers. And, and that's, the, that's the nexus of the point that I want to make this first point. Scripture should imp- inspire your prayers. And, and, and he's an older man now. And I, I think it's safe to say a wiser man, an older, wiser man. And... He, in his wisdom, does not see the sureness of the decree of God as a reason to not then pray to God. See, some of us reason this way. We say, well, God's, yeah, God's powerful. I believe he's there, and he's going to do what he's going to do anyway, so uh, what's the point of my prayers, right? And I may get into that a little more next week. I'm toying with it. I haven't written next week's sermon yet, so I, I, forgive me if I'm not right in that assertion. I'm just sort of thinking through that might be something about it, but the, at least let me just say it here, because I think it's pretty clear from the text. Daniel does not reason that way, and we shouldn't either. If God has decreed something, we sing the song, uh, whatever, whatever, God, whatever God ordains is right, right? We sing that, and there's great lyrics with that song. I love that song. Whatever our God ordains is right. But his rightness in ordaining something does not therefore logically lead to our apathy in praying for something. Does that, does that make sense? D- differently, the word, if it doesn't, I'll try again, and if it doesn't after that, I'll just give up. But the word of God, the word of God declares something's going to happen, then you, you should not wrongly reason, carnally, fleshly reason, that then therefore I don't need to ask for it. Um, example, the, the, the Lord Jesus is coming again, right? The second coming of the Lord, he's going to come again. Does that mean that you shouldn't ask for him to come again? Well, no. We're to hasten the day of the Lord. Lord, please come. Lord Jesus, come. It's how the Bible ends. Just one small example, right? If, if the Lord promises to be near to the brokenhearted, like the Psalter says, does that mean that when you're brokenhearted, you shouldn't ask the Lord to be near to you? Well, no. Hey, say, well, I, well, why? Well, I, I don't, God's ways are higher than my ways. I can't give you a full, this is, that's not the thesis of the sermon. It's just to say to you, when we pray corporately and when you pray, we are going to pray things that God has already said will be. And we're going to do it to the praise of his glory because he seems to be very pleased with it. That's important that we pray to him. Things that he's decreed, asking them to come. Now, especially though, this is not a hard sell for Daniel 
because he wants to see this fulfilled, I'm sure. He wants to see the restoration of the temple. He doesn't want to see Jerusalem desecrated anymore. But he's seen through this time, as Scripture is inspiring his prayer, he's seen through this time that the problem is not everybody out there. The problem is God's people in here. And I hope that we'll take that to heart today. Just, just to say, it is true, there are, I mean, lots of problems. I mean, we, could, we could spend all afternoon talking about everything that's wrong with books and culture and, <laughs> and everything else. You know, I, I, bet, I, I know I could, I bet you could too. We could, we could sit down and, and talk. And, and maybe sometimes that's, that's helpful, but that's not what this is. Sunday is the Lord's Day, and the Lord's Day is for the Lord. And what Daniel's coming to in this chapter, in his prayer for us, is the personal nature of the Lord God, Yahweh, to his people, and praying in a personal way because of the covenant responsibilities that we have, that we have broken, and because of the covenant faithfulness that he has to his people, he's praying in such a way as to turn this thing vertical so that the word of God is reflective back to us, our estate, that we might actually make progress instead of always doing a bait and switch kind of a thing and looking out there and seeing what all's going on out there. I mean, I am so glad, I'll say this, because I, I visit churches from time to time, and I'll brag on you to the extent that it brags on Christ, because we should only boast in the Lord. But the, yes, you're willing to talk about cultural things, and that's, that's okay. I'm not saying it's bad, but that's not the tenor line of every conversation in this church. When I hear people talking, people are talking about theology, which is the study of God. It's good. People are talking about God. They're talking about Scripture. They're talking about how that interfaces with their lives and what their next steps are in the faith and, and praising God. There's real conversations, and that is a sign of health, and I praise God for it. You're concerned for one another. I've got to move on because I could spend the whole sermon on this, but there's more to this text than, than simply this first point that Scripture inspires prayer. It specifically, second point, inspires prayers of confession and then prayers of praise. And I'll, I'll try to move more quickly here, even though I said the second point was the longest in terms of Scripture texts, but I've spoiler alerted enough of it. I'll try to, try to pick up the pace. So Scripture inspires prayers of confession and praise. Look at verse 4, specifically for the word confession. He has turned his face to the Lord. He's, he has, uh, he's got a posture that the ancients would have recognized as prayer. He's, got, he's dressed for worship, for prayer. And he prays to the Lord, and it says he made confession. In light of what he had seen from God's word previously, he confesses the sins of the people. Brother Mark led us in that just a bit ago. Confession, prayer of confession. He said, notice how he starts this prayer, which is interesting. It's sort of a composite prayer in the sense that praise is involved in every prayer. But, but notice the thoughtfulness, not just the sincerity, but the thoughtfulness here. Lord, you're great. If you don't know how to pray, and you're a believer, next time that you're praying, look at this with your eyes wide open, because God hears prayers with your eyes open too, and, and look at it and say, Oh Lord, you're great. That dog will hunt, won't it? That's an old southern saying that, that's a good dog that will work. Um, okay. Awesome God. God, you are awesome. Verse 4. Try that. So this is a sort of a confession of faith leading into a confession of sin. Also good. Also good. We confess the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is good. Lord, this is critical language here, as this text just sort of explodes before you. It's berit and chesed are the Hebrew words. Covenant and steadfast love or mercy. God is the covenant keeper. God, thank you for keeping covenant when we've broken it. God, thank you for your steadfast love when we've been loveless. See, you can pray that right back to him, can't you? Say, well, I'm not that good with words. He's the only one hearing it. He loves you deeply. Find the words. Find your voice. Cat doesn't have your tongue. Pray. Pray the scripture. Pray the, pray the Bible. And pray a confession of faith. Yes, but pray confessional prayers, like where you get to the point eventually of confessing your sin. Listen to how verse 4 unfolds. It says, to those who love him and keep his commandments, and then verse 5, we have sinned. He pivots to not just a confession of faith, but to praying a prayer of confession here. 
we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and rules, particularly the rules articulated in the law of Moses in the known text that he had that was mirroring back to him. But look at verse 6. This is very important just to, just to see a few of these verses for what they are. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. So there are people that warned us this would happen, both in Israel and Judah, and we did not listen. I mean, what a mess. If you go back and, and chronicle, literally chronicles in the Bible, you chronicle what happened between the height of the kingdom with David it just started to crumble from there. There's Solomon and all of his wisdom, but then there was lots of trouble and the, the sons and divided kingdom and Israel's divided kingdom and a mess between like 900 B.C. and 7-something B.C. when the northern kingdom was exiled. And, then, and, then, and he's actually praying for them too, it seems. Man, it's a, it's a massive corporate prayer. And then in 586 B.C. when these are exiled, although we might be tracking the dating to more like 605 B.C. when Daniel was hauled off, if you get those dates in there about right and when Egypt was conquered, it's probably like 609 B.C. to 539 B.C. I don't know the exact 70 years, but God does, and they're real. They're right there. And he's, he's praying for all these people, and he's, he's going way back with his faith family, and he's, he's saying, we didn't listen to the words of the Lord through the prophets. We did, we did not listen, and we did not keep the words of the law. And he starts with, with ranking officials in the people of God, true, but kings and princes in, in, a, in this context would have also had spiritual connotation. The king was to read the scriptures and know the scriptures. So these, these people, our fathers, to the people of all the land, they are to have known things and have prayed the scripture in ways that they had not done. They had not listened to the prophets, had not recognized the word of the Lord. In verse 7, says, to you, Lord, he references back to the Lord. Always quick to turn vertical with this. You have righteousness, we have open shame. This day, the men of Judah, the people that live there now, those who are near and far away as well, they've been exiled, they've been driven away because of the treachery that they've committed against you. That's the reason we take responsibility. We don't blame you, we blame ourselves. That's a critical part of confession, isn't it? I mean, confessing your sin requires that you stop making excuses and blaming God. Well, God, if you hadn't put me in that predicament, if you didn't give me that woman, if you didn't give me that husband, a true tough case makes bad law. But let's just talk on the main. Some of us just need an attitude adjustment, don't we? I mean, stop blaming God and start trusting God so that when you pray to Him, you're not qualifying your confession. God, I'm so sorry I was mad at my wife, but man, she was, she's a real bear to live with. You know? No, God, I'm really sorry that you gave me a wife and I was short-tempered with her. If this is the point after 70 years that Daniel is leading a prayer and hoping that the people have come to. Just a brokenness. Because they, I mean, they've been beat up. We're not unlike God's people in the 6th century, are we, in this way? I, I mean, we just will not confess wholeheartedly until the last possible minute sometimes. I'm talking to those of us that are believers. I'm not talking about those outside the covenant that haven't professed faith in Christ. I'm talking about us. I mean, we are just stubborn. I mean, we go on and on qualifying our sins, sometimes for years and years and decades before we, we come actually to confession and say, I got nothing else, God. I just appeal to your mercy and your righteousness. And I just, I just appeal to your forgiveness, like this text does. And, you know, God's like, fine. I bet. You know, I'm Mr. Opposite. Yes, finally. I just want to hug you, but I'm not going to hug you if you're just going to keep being obstinate. I mean, I'm here with you, but the Lord disciplines those he loves. We pick that up in the New Testament as well. In Hebrews 12, he disciplines. He just, he's just not going to coddle you if you have these, these unrepentant sins and these quasi-confessions. There is this text in the New Testament like this. It's 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. And what it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10 is so helpful. It's a refrain from the Apostle Paul. It says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Indicating there's a kind of grief that is not actually repentance. It's just, I, I got caught, I'm uncomfortable, I'm, I'm part of the gathered out people. But this is, this is how he, he, he says in, in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to look at this in context later, for you felt... A godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So he's making a distinction between two different types of grief. And how often, how often we are characterized by a sort of worldly grief that's not commensurate with the salvation we've received. And how regular we need to come back to these ordinary means of grace 
that we receive on Sunday morning by simply praying corporate prayers of praise and confession, which we're talking about confession here, based on the good confession. Now, the second aspect of point two is prayers of praise. And I'm just trying to make this very quick in the interest of time, but look at verse 11. Verse 11. Again, continuing to intersperse confession here, he references the known scripture, particularly the law of Moses, and he says, everybody, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. All of us have refused to obey your voice. All of us that were said among your people were not actually acting like your people. And refusing to obey your voice and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses... I'm thinking Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This is really heavy on Deuteronomy 28, 30. If you want to go back and read some texts that are relevant to this. It says, that, it says they're written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done in Jerusalem and it is written in the law of Moses. It was there, it was written, Moses wrote it down. About 900 years ago now, Moses wrote this down. And, I mean, in the time in which Daniel's saying this, it was written down, the law of Moses, it's all come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight into your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity which has been brought upon us, for the Lord is righteous in all his works he's done, and we have not obeyed his voice, even though he brought them out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm from, from Egypt. Even though salvation was attained by God's mighty, mighty power and outstretched arm. You read in Exodus, you don't get the law until after the Exodus. What you read is God's merciful to his people, and then he tells them how to live. He saves us, and then he instructs us. And yet, man, they're still prone to wander. I mean, they, they, you, could, you take them out of Egypt, but they still act like they're in Egypt. They take us out of our sin, we still act like we're slaves of sin. I mean, this is, this is the nature. And yet, praise be to God. Even as we can approach him using anthropomorphisms, using human language about sight and sound to talk to him, he hears us graciously in prayers like this that's inscripturated with Daniel. Hear us, see us, help us. So there's a, there's a sincerity to that. And there's also a biblicism to that kind of prayer as we're learning to pray. But he's referencing scripture and he's offering not just confession, but praise to God. I want you to notice this praise in this text. And I'm going to jump between the segments in this text to see it. Look at verse 9. He's praising God for mercy. You're a merciful God. When you're praying, tell God he's merciful. He is. For forgiveness. God, you're a forgiving God. All forgiveness, Colossians 1.14 says, through, comes through Christ himself. It's in him we have forgiveness. We can new covenantize this, and we will at the end of the sermon. You, you, these are your attributes. I haven't been merciful. I hold grudges. I haven't been forgiving. I want my pound of flesh. I've not been righteous. I've sinned in ways perhaps even the brother read about from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount during the prayer to frame the prayer of confession earlier. I, this is not me, but this is you. And I'm praying to you about who you are for the reputation of your own name, as one said, calling upon your name, asking for your help, and I'm praising you as I do it. So this is a prayer of praise, fundamentally. I think all prayer is, really. Whether it's confession, assurance of pardon, illumination, our favorite petition, we want to ask things of God. I would always urge you in your prayers to ask for personal things down the list. Worship Him first. Reflect back to Him who He is. And let that scripture shape what you're asking for. It'll, it'll shape it. In your private prayers, just like it shapes it in our public prayers. By the way, quick aside, I have this little book here that I'm commending to those that help us lead our services. It's titled Praying in Public by Pat Quinn, a guidebook for prayer in corporate worship. And you think to yourself, man, that's a real yawner. <laughs> you know, like, like, who wants to read a book about that? And then you stop and think about it, and you think, oh, wait a second. If we're supposed to be led well, and if being led is not just the doing of praying, but it's also the instructing of how we pray, which it is. Look, at, like Daniel's prayer has a shelf life here. It's not just that he led prayer and prayed confessionally for the corporate people, but he's also, this is now inscripturated for some reason for us teaching us, so it's both and, right? 
And if that's the case, then our service leaders, those that stand up here and lead us in prayer, should study to show themselves approved that they might rightly divide the word of truth and even pray the truth. Wouldn't you agree? And they, they do work at it, by the way. I want you to know. But this is a neat read. I know it's not a honor for you because you care about these things. Praying in public, and it would be helpful for anyone that wanted to better understand the way that the Bible instructs our prayer, both in content and in structure. Very helpful. But particularly with the ending of the second point, regard to praying prayers of confession and praying prayers of praise. Now that should take us down through verse 15. And I'm sure more, than could be said, more could be said than has been said, but it takes us down through 15. And now you're going to say, Matt, you already said you were through verse 15, and so I'm not going to allow you to jump back up to verse 13 as part of your, your third and final point, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Our third and final point is Scripture inspires prayers of petition. Petition, request, supplication, asking things of God. Thanking him all the way, but actually asking things of God. And, and I want you to kind of see in verse 13 how it sort of tees up the meaning of verses 16 through 19, in my estimation. And perhaps you have a different estimation. I'd love to talk with you about that as we're interacting with God's word. But verse 13 says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity came upon us, yet, at least 70 years of calamity that was based on hundreds of years of unfaithfulness, from the highest office to the lowest office, from the east to the west, all God's people, they're all north to the south, they're all unfaithful, from Dan to Beersheba. And he, he confesses all that, of course, but look at, look at what he says here. Next, it's almost formulaic. He says, look at the three things. He says, and I could have formed the whole sermon around this as a sort of a microcosm, but I, I chose not to, but I want to bring it out here. He says, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. Yet we have not turned from our iniquities. Yet we have not gained insight by your word. Again, nothing is one-on-one. God's not a cosmic genie. You don't just do it and it automatically happens. But God is pleased to take care of his people. I I wonder if you are are lacking insight into truth because you haven't turned from your iniquities. And I'm talking to Christians here, by the way, because this is a constant struggle for us. I wonder if you haven't gained insight into the truth because you haven't turned from your iniquities. And I wonder if you haven't turned from your iniquities because it's been a minute since you've entreated the favor of the Lord your God with a prayer of praise. I wonder if you haven't engaged in this process with your mind, body, soul, and strength. And I wonder if today is sort of an awakening for you to say, I need to be engaging in these corporate prayers when they happen. And that needs to be shaping my private prayers and my family prayers. It just needs to go home with me. I need to have an appetite for, for studying some of these things and thinking God's thoughts after him and, and, and turning them back in prayer. I, I wonder if I would entreat the favor of the Lord. I might see my iniquities more clearly. I might turn from them. And repentance might, as Acts 3 says, bring refreshing over my soul. And I might see more clearly as I look back into the revelation of truth again. And I might gain insight by the truth. And that insight and that wisdom might make my life gladder in Jesus, even with the sufferings that I go through. That sounds like really complicated stuff to me, Pastor. Is it? I mean, I, I, I don't know that it is. Read it, say it. Read it, say it. Read it, say it. Oh, I messed up. Let's try a different passage. Read it, say it. I was looking at, so I'll tell you an example. I have a Bible reading plan just like... You do. I'm special in that way. I fail at it. I get two to three days behind. I try to catch up. I get a week behind. I give up. Whatever the case may be, right? But I was reading my Bible reading plan this week. I was reading Psalm 42. And here's what it says. My tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 42.3. And then in Psalm 42.5 it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. Absolutely. I, mean, I can pray that. Word and prayer. How do I pray that? Well, because it resonates with me. Psalms are great for this. My tears have been my food. I, I am so tore up that I'm not eating, I'm just crying. God help me. I'm tore up about being tore up. Oh, and then look at the word, my soul. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why, why such turmoil in me? Why morbid introspection? Hope in you, God. I hope in you. I'll praise you again. I know I will because you are the ground of my salvation. Man, I can pray that just like that. And God is pleased. He's pleased to move through the prayers of his people. Scripture inspires prayers of petition, especially after we've spent plenty of time praising him, confessing our sin, reflecting back his words to him. We ask for things. We're going to end this service by asking for things. We're going to embrace the newness of a new covenant in our relationship with him by taking the Lord's Supper. And then 
we're going to have a, a prayer of, of supplication or request where I'm going to pray for some kind of specific things and some general things for us as we the people, then we're going to have a benediction, we're going to leave. It's all very intentional in that liturgy or that order of worship, as best as we understand the way that we've been taught to pray by, by people in the Bible, by the way, that, especially the Lord Jesus. He taught us to pray, and many of these cues are coming from insights from how Jesus prayed. But Scripture inspires prayer petition. Here's how I see that in verses 16 to 19. Verse 16 says, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. So the place which you promised to dwell has become a byword. So according to you, and because of who you are, based on your reputation, I'm asking you now, would you do something that would glorify your name and also in turn help your people? Verse 17, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. I'm asking you to hear me. I'm not just confessing sin. I'm asking you to act. It says, it says O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. This sounds a lot like the priestly blessing in Numbers 6.24, doesn't it? May the Lord bless and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and grant you peace. He's asking for a reconstitution, for a fresh start amongst God's covenant people. He's saying, would you do this again? Verse 18, oh, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open my eyes, open your eyes and see the desolations. He's petitioning him. Would you hear me? Would you see me? Not that he doesn't, but would you? Same, both and. And, and it's because of your righteousness, verse 18, not my own. It's because of your mercy, again, reflecting who God is. God Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. And he asks with an urgency, don't delay. I've understood in Jeremiah that it's your pleasing purpose to take us back to the land. And I'm going to ask you to do that. Take us out from underneath the direct thumb of not only the Babylonians through the Persians, but now the Persians. And don't delay. And for your own sake, my God, get us there because of your own name. And he prays a, a, a heartfelt request. I mean, there couldn't be a bigger request. He wants to go to a place he hasn't been since he was 10, 12, 14 years old. And he wants all the people to come home, and he wants them to come home not just in their bodies, but in their hearts. Wonderful thing, isn't it? And he asks for this prayer. Lord, bless and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. And he, he asks the Lord for, for something. I, I want you to know this morning, this third and final point, that God wants you to ask him for things. Yes, ask according to his word, according to his will. God's will be done, but ask him. You know, if, you're, if you're hurting, ask for help. Ask us to pray for help if, if you're hurting. If, if you have a need, a material need, ask for help. If you have someone that you care deeply for that is wayward from the faith, ask for help. And ask for it according to, to him, not according to something you've merited. Ask it according to him. Petition him based on his character. That's the ground here, and that's things that we learn from this wonderful and, and glorious text. We learn how much the us and the we impacts the you and the me when we pray individually and with our families. But do ask for all sorts of things. When you get stumped in prayer, when you know you need to pray but you don't know what to say, go to the Scripture. Pray the very words of God back to Him as we've illustrated and, and even modeled today in this sermon. However liberating that this, this sermon might be in terms of the way Daniel prayed, uh, invariably you're going to reach times again and again in your life where you're going to be stomped. And I'm just, just struck by the fact that God has given us hope for those moments too. During Jesus' earthly ministry, like Daniel, Jesus offered intercessory prayer for the people. And, but unlike Daniel, Jesus never stopped. I was reading commentaries to get ready for today, and David Helm really, really brought something out that I've known, but it, in light of this text, it, um, it really popped. It's a, where Paul comforts the people, us, through Romans 8.34, the Spirit comforts us, where it says, in Romans 8.34, Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Christ interceding for us. The writer of Hebrews offers a very similar, notice that word interceding, the author of Hebrews offers a very similar comfort to us as his people. Consequently, Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save us to the uttermost 
those of us who draw near to God through him. Christ, the great intercessor. Since Christ always lives to do what for us? To make intercession. When you're stumped on prayer, who's still, pray- who's still interceding for you? It's Christ, isn't it? He cares for you. And I just say this morning, um, by way of conclusion, I-, I wonder if, with all this us and we language, I wonder if you're, if you're not yet considering yourself a part of the us and the we. Perhaps you're on the outside in, looking at the body of Christ. It's the reason we make separations at communion, that you might have the grace of seeing your need to come in. Perhaps you're on the outside looking in of God's covenant relationship and you've never received for yourself God's free offer of this covenant relationship of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. We as believers have nothing that we've not received. It's all been given to us. We are sinners like you on equal footing in terms of sin. We each deserve God's eternal wrath. Seventy years pales in comparisons to 70 eons. And he says yet in his word that whoever, whomever receives him, he gives rights to you to be his family. I wonder if you'd receive him today. I wonder if you would call upon the name of the Lord like men have been, of God have been doing since Seth in Genesis 4. I wonder if you would confess him. I wonder if you would accept his forgiveness. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I wonder if you would repent and be called among, counted among those who not only call on the Lord, but are repenters and are faithers or believers. I wonder if you'd trust God's character, His good news, this day. I wonder if you'd do that. I wonder if you'd call on Him. That's a prayer He'll hear from you as an outsider coming in. A prayer of faith and repentance. And you start there. And then the journey begins. Let's take about a half minute and consider Daniel 9 for our lives today.